sad. So, so we're we're at Kew Gardens, sitting in front of what is it? The Garden of Harmony, which is the, one of the Japanese gardens here at Kew, and it's harmonious. <laughs> um, I'm sitting here with Tan Tuan Egg, um, the novelist of The Gift of Rain, The Garden of Evening Mist. Hello, hello, and good morning. Um, and I thought Kew Gardens would be a perfect place to do this interview. In fact, we've had a lovely walk already. Um, it's a very lovely, overcast and cool day here. But you just have to get accustomed to the... To the, uh, the plains. <laughs> yes. In the depth of the forest, an old oak root, the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches, the ivy her mantle threw when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy, oh. Right, hello and welcome to Trees A Crowd. My name is David Oakes and this is a podcast for those of you who like me, think that our natural world is incredible. Including people seated by babbling brooks, writing historical books about coring rooks perched in precarious nooks. I get to talk to people who are inspired by or dedicated to the natural world. Now, what you just heard was the start of an interview that I recorded back in the pre-pandemic October of 2019. It was a gorgeous walk through the Royal Botanical Gardens in Kew in search of Malaysian flora and Japanese ornamental gardens, and I was in the company of the Booker Prize-nominated novelist Tan Tuan Eng. But the audio was destroyed by the Heathrow flight path, and as such, I have sat on that jet-trail-scarred discussion for almost four years. For if anything is worth doing, it is worth doing well. For those of you that are foolishly unaware of his oeuvre, Tuaneng was the first Malay writer to win a number of key literary prizes, including the Man Asia Prize and the Walter Scott Prize for Historical Fiction. And we were lucky enough to become friends whilst in Malaysia, where we were filming the film adaptation of his Booker Prize-nominated The Garden of Evening Mists. So, now, to coincide with the release of his new novel, The House of Doors, and finding myself down in Cape Town with the chance of a second bite of the durian, we poured a couple of glasses of chilled white wine, sat in his beautifully kept garden, and enjoyed, this time, a sky fortunately devoid of regular air transit. And, considering the events of his latest book, follow Willie Somerset Maugham and his fellow protagonists from London to Malaysia, and then on to the South African Karoo, the long journey this interview has taken could not be more fitting. So, despite the four-year delay, this is Teresa Crowd, and this, finally, is Tan Tuaneng. So the reason why I'm talking to you is because your books, all three of them now, House of Doors comes out very soon or has already just come out, depending on when this episode goes out, are laden with beautiful natural historical imagery. So people would think from reading your books that you're a lover of the natural world, yet I am aware fundamentally that you're a city boy at heart so my question is who are you what's your identity are you the city boy and do you pretend to be a natural history person when you put pen to paper or are you a city boy that has this secret rural hidden child inside waiting to explode what do you think you are well i think i'm both because i grew up in the city so the city boy is always the what city did you grow up in? Um, Kuala Lumpur. 
before that Penang, which is a smaller city. Is is Penang a city? Oh, it depends on who you ask. I'm asking (laughs) you, is Penang a city? It received uh, city status a few years ago. Because Georgetown itself has got UNESCO World Heritage Site, but that's just like a, is that a, a district? That's just the commercial district, sure. isn't it? The center of town. But I, if I'm right, I believe Penang and Georgetown, the whole of Penang, has received city status a few okay. years ago. So you grew up in Penang and, and KL. KL. Um, nature wasn't part of, wasn't a big part of my life, nor for many people growing up in Kuala Lumpur. And um, why was that the case? Was that just the nature of those particular places, or was major... Malaysian education? pointed in an opposite direction? It, it's both because uh, well, I grew up in a suburb, a lot of commercial shops and, and, and buildings and, and nature wasn't a part of our lives. Uh, perhaps it was due to my parents, they weren't into nature so we, we very seldom went on nature outings to, you know, to, to any forest reserves or, the, or even the park. Sure. I don't remember going to any park uh, when I was growing up. My brief experience of KL was of a place where nature crept in though. Like there would always be monkeys sort of trying to swing across the roads. Well, certainly where we were staying and I don't know whether I noticed the, the flora more just because it was alien to my eyes but it seemed to me a fairly florid city. Yes there's lots of high-rises everywhere but like you've got a lot of interesting birds coming in, a lot of monkeys and things. I think it's, it depends on where you live. Um, the older parts of KL which are also the more expensive parts, you mm-hmm. can still see um, sufficient greenery and parks and, and the older trees and, and rainforests, bits of the remnants of the rainforest. But where I grew up, it was, uh, they were all new suburbs and you know, they, it was, they were planned, they were constructed to plan. So sure. let's build a suburb here, let's cut down all the trees and uh, let's build. Nature wasn't part of those Do you think areas. that's changed back home when you go back and visit? Do you no, it's... it's become Still even urban. more it's become even more frenetic and the demand for housing for more living areas for more people more and more people is just making it worse it's sad uh, i think this uh, you can see that with the rest of the uk as well there are mm-hmm. more demands for housing there are more demands for houses to be built where nature reserves used to be or, or greenery used to be and um, i don't think it will stop sadly that's a, it's a very sobering and, and sad state of affairs. Your father was in banking, he I was think a, I'm right he, he started working in the chartered bank from the age of 16. Child labor wasn't an issue. Then, so. <laughs> and he was always very proud that he stayed with the bank all his life and he retired. He took early retirement at 51. Oh, wow. And he moved around quite a lot, I we think. Moved around, we moved around because he was always getting transferred from one town to another. So every one or two years we'd move. So do you think you got to know Malaysia better than most because you saw all the corners of it? Mm, I was very young then, so I wasn't really aware or nor did I pay much attention to. We just went. If we had to move to another small town, we went. And, and we didn't stay long there in, in each place. So it was always very fleeting. The memories are fleeting of those towns. Did you make friends? No. For some reason, I suppose I always knew that I would be moving on soon so sure. if I, I made friends but I didn't keep them okay so, yeah and in those days it, it was much harder to keep friends you had to write letters and you had to post them you had to buy stamps and they all didn't that. sorry they didn't have instant messengers 
no, no emails or well telepathy tel- was the thing but any of those tickety tocks or yeah. those snappity chats <laughs> no i don't think i had many friends growing up but we, we didn't move around a, a huge amount or as often but i sort of made friends with nature that was sort of my way through the constancy was i mean i'm on the record of saying this a few times but I, my best friend was moss yeah, it says something more about me than anything else. But yeah, like, I think so, yes. if you were making friends temporarily with people, did that mean that that was your way of surviving rather than the natural world? Or I'm not saying it should be the natural world. I'm just saying that mine was. So that's my. I, I don't think. So. Yeah, I don't think so because you you had the the, the advantage and the privilege of of being surrounded by nature. You were aware of the. Oh come! I'm not giving you that one. You yeah. put a rainforest in Malaysia. It was like, miles away, and you—it's not miles <laughs> away. Like you still have to travel in the UK to get to things. Yeah. Like if you drive for two hours north of KL, you end up in the rainforest. Yeah, you see, two hours, whereas you—you you could just walk down to Richmond Park, and there's this beautiful green there. How is Richmond and Park your first reference of the natural world <laughs> in the United Kingdom when we've got national oh, parks of plenty? Kew's a botanical <laughs> garden that's been planted pe- by people. <laughs> Okay, so the Malaysian rainforest, let's start with that. Let's, let's drag you back okay. into accepting that there's some natural history in that amazing country that you're from, that you write about frequently as you've just published your third part in your Malay trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> like, you must have known that there was this beautiful well, green We knew expanse. there was a national park right smack in the centre of the peninsula. <laughs> and that was it. It had nothing to do with my life. I had no interest in it. I just knew it was uh, probably very uncomfortable to go in there and stay overnight. I wasn't into camping. I was, I was never a sure. member of the Boy Scouts. This so. is a place that people see as a spiritual place, though. This is where ancestors, ghosts yes, go. Yes, yeah, and the animism, the trees. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it wasn't that for me. I just knew <sighs> Malaysian rainforest is different from forests in the UK, where you, you can actually walk through them. It's, it's mm-hmm. less packed with growth where you really can't move at all you have to hack your way through it it's called life it's, it's called life but it's, it's called also life. it's also called it's also called an inconvenience <laughs> <laughs> whereas with with, with your, uh, your new forest yes you can walk through them you, uh, well when the new forest was yeah. planted in 1066 yeah. by a bunch of french people yes. they made a lovely garden for yes, you to think as a yes. wild space no the malaysian rainforest isn't you can't move in there you have to and you have yeah. to have a, yeah it's noisy it's noisy it's dangerous as well if you get lost i remember the first time i headed off into it and you said be wary of tigers yes and i was like "Ooh, (laughs) well that's exciting we don't have tigers in the new forest and i told you be wary of evil spirits as well you told me not to piss without saying sorry yes and i told you not to look around if you hear somebody laughing loudly in the middle of nowhere why would that be troublesome those are supposed to be the the spirits of the jungle and Uh and they their main task is to lure you away from from the path and get you lost i've got a friend many years ago and he was a surveyor and one of his early jobs was going into one of these jungles in, in malaya uh-huh. and he with, with a was few other surveying people, for like farms or for i don't know what he was doing okay. but, so he was with this three or four people they were in the jungle and um in the middle of nowhere and he started to hear a voice laughing just echoing all around them and he said nothing and the guys in front of him said nothing as well they just kept their eyes on the track and they kept walking it was only when they got out of the jungle they looked at each other and they said did you hear that and they said yes but don't ever acknowledge that you've heard it in there because then 
then you're lost. So, so there's this thing, the rainforest of Malaysia, is, it's, it's filled with stories like these, mm. the supernatural. So are you scared of it then? Are you scared of the natural world? I'm scared of the supernatural. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up with all these stories and... Um, Give me another story from your reach deep, deep, deep into that. Well, it's a very common story where when somebody's driving uh, these deserted roads at night mm -hmm. and there's a, there's a woman standing by the roadside asking for a lift and she's usually got long hair and she's dressed in white and you're not, you shouldn't stop and give her a lift because she's not she's of not this man. world, yes. Why is it always women? <sighs> I don't it's always, know. always evil women. Is it perhaps the patriarchy has been constructing these myths to keep people under control for, for millennia? I, I don't know, yeah. That's a good <laughs> point. I've never thought of that. <laughs> okay, so you hate the Malaysian rainforest. I don't hate it. It's not, I'm not comfortable in it. It's Why did you set a whole chunk of your second book up in Cameron Highlands? Well, it's for this very prosaic reasons, because I had to have a Japanese garden and I looked at the climate and the places in Malaysia and there were only two places where a Japanese, a, a almost traditional Japanese garden could conceivably and probably be uh, constructed. That was Fraser's Hill or Cameron Highlands. Cameron Highlands was more scenic because of the tea mm -hmm. uh, plantations. Tea plantations yes. And it had more interesting stories there with, with Jim Thompson and with the with the history of the tea plantations there as well. So Fraser's Hill is more quiet. Uh, nothing much happens there. So I, I didn't want to set it there. So it's nothing to do with the manicured orderness of Japanese gardens being set within the manic vastness of the Malaysian rainforest well, that, and that the was dichotomy a, that, that came of two later. different places meeting. <laughs> that nothing poetic later. like that. <laughs> that came later. <laughs> it's, just, it's just the weather and the it's climate. It's just the weather and the climate, yes. <laughs> It's an amazing part of the world where you do have these worlds clashing and it's not just, and this is the joy of that second book, it's not just wild versus unwild, it's the wild rainforest versus the fictional Japanese unwild garden, Japanese yes. garden, yeah. but it's also the semi-wild uh, rural farming of tea yeah. plantations and it's this amazing habitat that shifts from one to the other, which you capture wonderfully. And also the mist, of course, the mist. It's always good for a writer to use mist too, because then you can have a free reign. Oh, you're such a cynic. You, you, you can give your purple prose a free reign. It's, I love writing about the weather for some reason. I love writing about rain and mist, because you can be descriptive and you can also create mood and atmosphere with, with I was going writing. to ask yeah. you that question. I thought that's a really bland question to ask. But like your first book is called The Gift of Rain. The second book is The Garden of Evening yes. Mist. But the third book is just House of Doors. I couldn't think of a <laughs> weather-related <laughs> I did consider it. But after rain and mist, what else was there? Wind. Ah. The Snow of Penang. The House of Winds. The House of Winds. Oh, that's good. Oh, yes. Yeah. I because think the doors Michelle are always Yeo open in the, the, winds, yeah. the winds are coming in on the beach house. The book hasn't the gone out yet. Do you want to call your publisher? <laughs> Um, okay, so you're a child and you're moving around quite a bit. Like, at what point did you go, I have a creative part of my body? When did you want to become a writer? Well, you, you talked about whether I made friends during all these moves in my childhood. And the friends I made were my books. Books were my friends. I carried my favorite books around and all the moves I made sure they came with me. So mm -hmm. those were more or less my friends. I didn't think I wanted to be a writer until 
9 or 10 when I was reading, so I can't remember what book I was reading. And I thought, you know, this is so badly written. I can do better than this. Sure. this and that's when the idea was planted. Um, I didn't do anything about it because I'm inherently lazy, so it was nicer <laughs> to talk about it. I think I started trying to write one or two stories, but after one page, it was such hard work. And I thought, oh, I'd rather be reading a book than writing one. So <laughs> Am I correct in saying it wasn't until you were about 29 when you wrote The Gift of Rain Ye or published The Gift of Rain? Yes, 29, yes. How long did it take to write? About two or th two years, two, um, probably okay. more, yes. In your latest book, uh, Somerset Maugham, Willie Somerset Maugham, talks about his childhood reading books and finding his solace in Walter Scott, Scott and the like. Is that truthful or is that you placing yourself that's, in That's him. him, that's him. But I think that's Did truthful. Did you write about Somerset Maugham because you recognised a kindred spirit? Not really. I wrote about him because I was interested in how he came to write some of his short stories set in Malaya. And particularly the letter I was, I was interested in how he came to hear about that's that. a short story in his collection the casuarina tree yes, about the ethel proudlock murder trial so i wanted to find out more about it and I, th and I thought it would make a good story for modern day readers because i have this feeling i could be wrong but he's on the wane isn't he is his his people's awareness of him especially today as someone in the theatre, I've got a greater awareness because yeah. I think most of his success came from his plays. But I would suggest that, yeah, I don't think people I read his novels no. in quite the same way no. as he did and his, his short stories, his travels, memoirs. Are, so I, I felt it would be nice to, if, if a new generation of readers uh, could read or discover him, because that sounds very arrogant, as, as though I no. have this great power to influence things. But it was just, I just felt it a waste. That he was slowly fading away. One of the most powerful parts of your book, the imagery of, of, of Willie within the book, is him as an explorer. I mean, in part, you re represent him as someone who's escaping from the pressures of his marriage, which, as a, as a gay man, he wasn't happy within. I mean, he wasn't out so it's whether he was gay or not it depends upon how you define that at the period of the time but he was in a relationship with his wife and with a, a gay lover at that time at your writing but you express you represent him as an explorer and someone who thrilled the anthropological opportunities of meeting people in different places but also meeting the natural world in those places you talk about the bore that almost took his life yes not not a boring person he met no. in a pub but like a an upstream flowing uh, river uh, movement. Tidal, the tidal wave. There you go. Do you find that interesting, that you're writing about a guy who obviously had a sense of adventure and a joy of the natural world, which you obviously lack as a human being? <laughs> I don't think he was that much into nature. You okay. know? I think he was more interested in people. Um, I found his nature writing... Trite? To, you can say trite. I wouldn't say trite, but unexciting. Okay. uninspiring it's almost cliched his, his descriptions or too labored there were some some of his letters where he described his his boat journeys up that same river i found that he was forcing himself too hard to be poetic and, it, and those descriptions i found terribly labored how do you find nature writing then because you do nature write you search for metaphor in nature frequently and i can i can i've even got one here i can quote at you Dragonflies with stained glass wings, stitched invisible threads in the air, the two friends gaze down at the land below, watching the cloud shadows bruise the earth. 
texts. How do you come up with? With great difficulty, uh, especially with each subsequent book. <laughs> um, it's for me, it's t extremely hard to come up with something uh, the original description that is so apt. Or when you read it, I want you to go, yes, that's exactly what it looks like. Mm -hmm. But why hasn't somebody else described it this way? Because this is so obvious that it's what it looks like. That's, that's, the, that's the feeling I want the reader to have when they see something, a description like that. So it's extremely difficult to, to come up with it. Uh, Do you think you've ever come up with a natural metaphor that is so perfect that no one should ever try to describe it again? What's your, what are you most proud of? Well, with the, with the Garden of Evening Mist, I had a description of a, of a spider web. I think I wrote um, the spider web seething the wind for insects. When I wrote it, I knew, oh, I had oh, mild cold shivers. I thought, oh, this is... Even I said it to myself, oh, this is, this is good. Uh, this is, because that's exactly what the spider web's doing. Mm, it is. But why hasn't, why hasn't anybody described, described it this way? Yes. But it is seething the wind for insects. These are the sort of descriptions I want to come up with, and I hope I can continue to... Uh, keep coming up with something fresh, original, lyrical, but also when you read it, you say, Yes, yes, 100%, that's what it's like. Uh, but it, it's very hard. It's Do you think it helps to be so objective to the natural world to, in order to tell people what it's doing? I think so. Uh, I, whenever I go on walks, on nature walks, um, one, one part of my head my brain is constantly working okay how would i describe this remember this remember 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 this is this looks like this this looks like that but you have to perfect the description is not good enough yet so it's storing away all these things as i'm walking uh, it's it's work <laughs> why is that do you have adhd i sometimes think i do because you know when when i'm arranging stuff or when i'm tidying up stuff or especially on the kitchen counter mm -hmm. i will do it a few times or if I'm switching off the light switch I would flick it on back and forth three or four times just to make sure that I have switched it off so but apparently I'm not unusual because I've spoken with some friends and they they say oh I do exactly the same thing so maybe all of us have, have some form mild form of ADHD so if you wrote your first book at the age of 29 or the two years preceding 27 to 29 what were you doing before that I think I've got you done as doing a master's in shipping law. Well, I was, uh, yes, in Cape Town. But before that, I was a lawyer in KL. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't like being a lawyer. I didn't like cleaning up people's messes. Were you a court lawyer? or We were both. We, 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 in Malaysia, the professions are few. So I was, I was called an advocate and solicitor. So very often we did the paperwork of the solicitor and then we would take the case and argue in court ourselves. Okay. Did you enjoy that? I like the performative, isn't it? Yes. I like preparing the paperwork more than going <laughs> to court. And I, was a, I, was a, I wasn't a good lawyer because I was always trying to talk my clients uh, into settling. I didn't, I didn't want to go to court, uh, basically. I didn't, I didn't want, because it, going to court entails a lot of work. And again, I'm inherently lazy. So. It's messy, isn't it? Yeah, it's messy. It's, and it's a lot of long hours deep into the night when I would rather go home and read a book instead of being stuck in the office yeah. until 10 p.m. So I was always talking my clients into just settle it because you're wasting your money, you're going to get stressed, this case will run for eight years and you don't want that. 
And of course, the, the partners of the law firm uh, where I worked in, they, they weren't happy because they weren't getting the profits, the money from the, the court case, the hours that I could have charged. <laughs> <laughs> How do you feel having just put a court case in your most recent book? Is it kind of nice to sort of have that kind of full circle? I could see how stressful it is and I, w I was glad that I didn't have to be in that court case mm. in, that, in that novel because that case was quite messy as well. Yeah, I mean it's a whole load of things. It's, it's a whole load of patriarchy things. and gender it's versus yeah. homicide and intent and, and snobbery, sexual abuse and snobbery slavery, and prejudice yes, and, yeah. and race is yes, a big one in that yeah. one as well. Yes, so that, that trial I think interested Somerset more because it encapsulated everything that was going on in colonial society and I think he saw that straight away. Was he a colonialist with a capital C? I think he enjoyed the benefits of colonialism. I think personally he I think he was a very fair person so he never liked injustice uh -huh. because so much injustice had been done to him by, by fate over his, the course of his life. I mean, he lost his parents at a very young age. He had to move to, he was born in Paris and then he had to move back to, to England at a very young age, nine or 10. And he was bullied at school and he had a stammer and all that. So he was very much against injustice, but I think he was a man of his times. He, if society was advantages or beneficial to him, who was he to complain? And I think a lot of us are like that. If if we're reaping the rewards of a, a, a certain time in history, many of us wouldn't make a lot of effort to uh, um, change that. Do you enjoy the benefits of colonialism? I think Malaysia did in, in many ways because we, had, uh, we could have had worse colonial masters if you look at the other countries around us. Mm -hmm. The I mean, Dutch weren't great in Indonesia. The French weren't known for the humanity in, in, in French Indochina. Britain was, I think, of the lot. Oh, we don't had, let us off! Don't off let lot, us I off. I said of the lot, of of the of oh. the possible or the of the possible uh, colonial uh, powers that could have. Uh, but Malaysia was like tussled and fought over for decades. Whether it be the Chinese, the Japanese, the Brits. They were all there, like, trying to yeah. get a bit of it. You probably benefited from the fact they were so busy fighting amongst each other <laughs> that they left quite a lot of the Malaysians alone. Um, but I think it was the British way as well to leave most of the people alone. They just wanted to, to run the civil service. <laughs> <laughs> so of the lot of colonial powers, I think we had the best of the lot. It could have been much worse. How do you think Cape Town has suffered with colonial heritage as someone who has now made their home in yeah. Cape Town and has done for the last decade, two decades? I, I, about 20 years, yes. 20 years, yeah. I don't think they, well, you see, they had the Dutch. <laughs> Do you hate the Dutch? No, I don't. <laughs> I don't. Um, I found it just interesting that when I went to Amsterdam the uh -huh. first time and I said, you know, oh, um, and I could understand a bit of the Dutch on the signboard because I, 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 I can see a, a bit of the Afrikaans that I learned here. And I could understand most of the signboards. I could understand some of the conversation. But it was very surprising to me how many of the Dutch people, when I said, oh, I, uh, I live in Cape Town, and they straight away say, oh, I don't understand Afrikaans. And I'm thinking, well, that, that's nonsense. Because if I can understand Dutch mm -hmm. through Afrikaans, you can understand Afrikaans through Dutch. Almost everybody straight away, without me prompting, they just said, oh, I don't understand Afrikaans. I didn't ask, first of all. <laughs> Where do you belong? 
I don't know. Um, culturally, I belong, I suppose, more attuned to the cultural uh, life of England okay. because of the colonial influence again. We, we grew up with English books and English history and English culture, pop singers and all that. So and you chose to write in English? Yeah. Well, I didn't choose. That's the only language I could write in. Okay. I, can't, I can't write in Mandarin. I can't write in Malay. Not good enough. I dream in English. What so do you mean not good enough? How, like, what I do you lack? The feeling for the nuances. Well, first of all, my, my Mandarin isn't that great because I didn't have much schooling in it. So, uh -huh. And Malay, it's just that probably because my parents grew up, uh, uh, they, they, they went to school, uh, English medium school, so uh -huh. it was always English at home. And we just read books from the UK, Enid Blyton, uh, Within the Willows. <laughs> I grew up with all that. Yeah. But you fight to represent a Malay identity, a, co a complicated Malay identity of many, many cultures all together. But I don't fight for that. I just write about it. I'm not easy. I, I Are don't you in denial? I'm not in denial. <laughs> I'm, I, I don't see myself as representing anything or anyone. It just happens that I'm a Malaysian writer writing in English about certain periods of my country's history. Mm -hmm. um, I, and I, I really don't see myself as uh, uh, a representative of anything uh, it's and it's very dangerous for writers to be to 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 represent anything i think mm -hmm. it's it's they shouldn't that's that's my own view uh, but some writers want to be representative of something that, that's fine fine with them do you think there is a greater pressure put upon novelists these days to represent something i think there is but it's only if they succumb to it you, do, you don't have to. You, know, you can straight away, like uh, what I'm saying now, I'm telling the whole world now, look, this, I don't represent uh, anything. I don't want you to force me into any boxes. Um, take me as how I've described myself. This is it. So it, it, it depends on, I think each writer is different. So some of them want to be. Mm -hmm. you know, some of them want to have a, I don't want to say a soapbox, uh, agenda. It was just too strong a word as well. I, I prefer to let my books speak, and what I most what I most hope is that my books will last. They're meant to be timeless, not just timely, but timeless. Fifty, a hundred years from now, I'm hoping that the body of work that I've created will still be read, will still be there, will stand the test of time. That's that's the most important thing to me, not anything else. Do you feel the pressure as someone writing historical fiction to represent history accurately? Well, that's more... Because I think historical fiction is a blurry subject. It's a blurry, and I, I'm, I often wonder at the description because why isn't Ian McEwan uh, referred to as a historical fiction a fiction writer because Atonement is set in mm -hmm. the Second World War because Zuo Ishiguro's first two books were set uh, during the Second World War and after. I always forget that we both love Ishiguro. Yeah. So why why aren't those novelists uh, referred to as historical novelists? So it doesn't matter whether you're writing historical fiction or contemporary fiction. You have to do your research and be accurate. It doesn't matter which era you're writing about. So do you write historical fiction? I think I do, but I don't see it as <laughs> historical fiction. The past is, when I'm writing, the past is very present with me. Uh -huh. I see it uh, as, as happening at that moment while I'm, I'm, I'm in, in the zone, as, as, as Britney says. You know? 
Don't you dare quote Brittany. I thought we've got how long was it? We're about half an hour through, and um, we've not mentioned the Pet Shop Boys once yet, which I thought was doing really well. But we've got Brittany in there. I just come up with a really good question as well. I can't remember what it was. Do you think if rather than writing historical fiction, in inverted commas, you were writing contemporary fiction, do you think that the natural metaphors that you use, those of herons and spiders' legs and mist and rain, do you think they would be there as frequently? It depends on the yeah. setting, I think. Uh-huh. Uh, if I were writing about, say, a, a beautiful landscape or a beautiful town, then yes, I would bring that in because I do use descriptions of nature to signal to the reader the mood of the characters instead of telling, t- telling them directly that um, this woman's feeling sad or she's missing somebody but mm-hmm. I use nature to, to, to create that, that awareness. So but like you do write about towns and cities, like yeah. there's an element of KL that appears yes. in the latest well, book but you talk about it in terms of the journey through KL in terms yeah. of the natural world. Yeah. You don't talk about and there was this wonderful big building over here and this great skyscraper over there and a I suppose they're not, they're not, they're not as picturesque, you know, uh, uh, um, st- um, modern buildings. There's not much you can say about But you love architecture. I know you love architecture. The older, the, the heritage ones. And you, see, you can see in my books there, there are descriptions of the, of the heritage, those that should be conserved and protected. But modern day buildings, there's really nothing much Nothing poetic you can dis- use uh, say about them. You know, it's an office building and it's a shopping mall. That's it. Are you done with with historical Malaysia? Mm, Malaya? Yes, Malaysia. I think I told somebody the other day that this is probably the my Malayan trilogy. <laughs> so we're off to write about Wordsworth and the Lake District next or something like Richmond, that. Richmond. I want to write a Richmond, Richmond novel. novel. Yes. Oh, I'd love to write a, a, a contemporary Richmond novel. Contemporary. Yes. They pop to Tiger. And yes, then go yeah. to the Vanshi uh, uh, ice cream shop before yes, popping around the corner to Whole Foods. Itsu, where they, Itsu for They some. go to Itsu for some <laughs> yes, you see, that's seaweed salad. And now, isn't that exotic for a reader outside the it's UK? It's exotic for Richmond. <laughs> I would love to write a, a contemporary novel about Richmond, but especially when, when uh, I used to stay there because of, of, my, of our friends who had, who had a flat there mm-hmm. that I could use. Right, what you know, that's what they're saying. Hmm? Right, yes. what you know. So I was taking notes then whenever I was walking. Okay, this is the road down to the, the river. This is called the river, the river part or something. And then there's a pub there, the White Cross. And I would love to set that. It's, it's exotic. I love the fact that I first met you in KL. You forced me to go to your hometown of Penang. <laughs> We've spoken at length in many countries. We're now sitting in Cape Town. And you just want to write about the little bit of London that I lived in before we even met. <laughs> and I'm there going, no, Penang see, is you far you more beautiful. You don't appreciate what you have. I completely appreciate what wow. I have. And I tell you that Penang is better than Richmond. Well, Richmond is exotic as well for us not living there. It's, it's okay, would you rather have lunch in Penang or Richmond? Oh, that's a difficult... I think I would have lunch in Penang, but I wouldn't mind living in Richmond. Okay, if you were if you were UNESCO, which one is a World Heritage Site, Richmond or Penang? Well, Penang, obviously. Yeah, okay. Yes, yeah. Um, which celebrates the multiculturalism of the countries that exist within it, and which one makes it almost costly well, the, and efficient these, to these exist within These questions are all one-sided. Is I, I challenge that. They're all factually based and based on happiness. They're all loaded and unfair. <laughs> Okay, Um, the Japanese garden in the Garden of Evening Mists, what did you learn from all the research that you did into that amazing art form that tries to take humanity and nature and smush them both together? 
that I don't want to have one because <laughs> there's so much work. I think they are very important for the human soul because they show that you can have order and nature mm -hmm. at the same time. Uh, You're probably the only person I've ever interviewed who's ever said anything like that. I want my nature to be ordered. I want okay. it to be safe and... Safe? <laughs> safe, yes. For humans? For me. <laughs> no leeches, no, no snakes crawling out from... Uh, I'd like my nature to be controlled. Am I right in saying that you once met the former gardener of the Emperor yes. of Japan? Yes, him and his brother as well. Uh, in, in, in Johannesburg, in a, in a very rich person's house. <laughs> can't say the name because uh, no, no no please don't did you get any sense of how the gardener of the emperor of japan felt in terms of their pressure to do a good job because that must be quite a I lot of so, weight on your shoulders but you know i only spoke to i only spoke to them for about five or ten minutes okay. through an interpreter uh, but i saw his brother working in that garden uh, subsequently uh, he had a, a team of six or seven apprentices with him they were up in trees on, on rope slings, uh, pruning and pollarding, using all the traditional methods. Um, very hardworking, very dedicated. So I think they, you know, when you're the Empress Gardener, you tend to be proud of your profession, I think, yeah, yeah. your skills. Yeah. Yeah, I think the Empress Gardener is probably as high up as you could go in I horticulture. Think so, yeah. Yes. So I think they take great pride. In, in doing their job. I mean, gardening terrifies me. I mean, because I believe that nature should be wild and unkempt. I leave gardening very much over to my better half. The idea of having a set style and set yeah. of, it's not laws, but uh, belief, a belief system by which your garden yes. should be governed sounds terrifying to me. Is it? Why? There's order there, there's tranquility. There's uh, harmony. You know, the harmony is there. It's 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 calculated, yes, but it, it it's there. Um, there's cleanliness. There's neatness and tidiness. And, um, I that, but if you want that, why do it outside? Why control the wild world? Why not? If you can, if you can, if you have the ability to do it, and it's not harming the environment. In that, uh, it's not harming anyone or anything. You, you are... As someone who's world-travelled, if you could go for a walk anywhere in the world uh, right now, where would it be? Along the towpath, along Richmond uh, on the, by the river. <laughs> what would you hope to see? Just life on the river. Human life? Human life, bird life, herons, the blue herons. I, I've seen a few of them. Um, the swans. Just people rowing their boats on the river sitting down, enjoying life. Uh, I used to do that walk from, from Richmond to Ham House mm -hmm. quite frequently, and I, I love that walk. So that, that's, yeah, that's one. Would and you, you know, just, just, just away uh, 500 meters from less than that, 20, 30 meters from the river is a Waterstones bookshop, so how, <laughs> how convenient that is. Oh, don't say, don't say the Waterstones, say <laughs> uh, open it's book. the, it's open, the book, open book. Yeah. The open book is there. Yeah. There's the children's bookshop <laughs> down that back alley behind... Um, is it still there? They're still there. Okay. But open not, book. not the big brand bookshops open are fine, book but is, Independence uh, are certainly better. Open book is a fantastic bookshop and always, yeah, really well stocked with interesting titles, so I love them. 
I think it's interesting that one of your favorite places in the world, therefore, preserved an area. Richmond Park is right there yes. and fenced off and protected yes. and there. Ham House is owned by the National Trust, which yeah. again has stopped development. And yeah. There's a housing estate right next to it as soon as you yes. go outside of the, the National Trust uh, yes. <laughs> patented brick wall exterior. Like it's, do you believe that all space should be human, wall, natural, wall, human, wall, natural, wall? Well, in an ideal world, we wouldn't need walls. Because nature would leave us well alone and those leeches no, wouldn't no, crawl no, up. And also legs. crime yeah. and security and safety reasons, you know. That, so in an ideal world, there shouldn't be walls or fences. But the reality is uh, because of crime, because we feel unsafe, uh, we have to have those things. Uh, and I'm pragmatic enough to uh, accept that. But would you think there'd be less crime if there are more apex predators roaming the streets? If we're more terrified of tigers or, or, or wolves, then maybe we would spend more time protecting what we have rather than trying to steal other people's things. Well, I don't know. It depends on how, how well trained those tigers are. <laughs> I think human nature is such that those predators wouldn't last long because we'd be out there hunting them. I normally ask people who their favourite natural history hero is, but I'm not going to ask you that. Who's your favourite hero from literature? Yikes. What, literature as in character from a book or a writer or...? Either. Well, I would like to be James Bond because <laughs> because he gets to travel the world and uh, and look dapper doing it. And yes, and have the best of everything in life. And he gets to kill and, <laughs> and have no consequences. Do you something. want to kill people with no consequences? <laughs> You're thinking too hard yes, about that yes. question. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? Sometimes. <laughs> I mean, if all of us could kill with no consequences, I think it would be a uh, quite terrifying, isn't it? I mean, my neighbour now would want to kill me if, if he knows that he won't suffer any consequences. So. <laughs> but James Bond, yeah. Um, wouldn't you want to be James Bond? Who would you want to be? I mean, I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm the interviewer. <laughs> uh, it's funny. That I've only ever read one of the original Ian Fleming books. Yeah. I've read, oddly, a couple of the... Oh, there was the Sebastian uh, Forks one. and They were an interesting exercise in trying to recreate. I, I didn't really improve of that. Not that Sebastian asked me whether or not I improved of it or not. I don't know if I'd want to be James Bond, the, the literary character. The I mean, I'm, a, I'm a young male actor, youngish. I'm an increasingly less young male actor. Of course, I would have loved to have been asked when I was in my prime to be the titular dinner jacketed character. But he's a horrible human being, he's, isn't he? But he gets away with it. Do you write horrible human beings in your books? No, I think I write unsympathetic characters uh, faced with difficult situations. Uh, I, I always put my characters in, in very uh, hard to get out of situation emotionally or, or uh, in terms of the context because it's interesting for me to see how they get out of it. Are you uh, trying to learn from their mistakes? In some ways, yes. Um, one thing you'll notice is that my, I never write any... My characters are never passive because I, I really can't deal with passive characters in life as well. Um, when somebody tells me that he or she is, oh, he's, he's got this problem or this or that, I think just solve it. Don't sit around and talk about it. Take steps and, and do something. So my characters are always that. They, they, they will do something. They will try to get out of their uh, predicament. What uh, have you learned from them? To be, I think, to be, to be accepting of other people's uh, weaknesses because I was never that accepting. I think in my younger days, I, 
I didn't suffer fools. Well, that's just it. Even though I most most of the times I am a fool myself, but I I don't suffer fools. So I think I've learned to be more accepting. Final question, and we'll draw this natural history podcast to a close. <laughs> I, I'm very excited to hear what your answer is to this one, because the last time I asked you this question, the answer was a little suspicious. The question is, if you could bring any species back from extinction, what would it be? And for the record, the last time... What did I say? You came up with an animal that wasn't extinct. <laughs> Which one was you it? You came up with the platypus. <laughs> That's extinct. It's not extinct. It is extinct. The, the platypus is not extinct. <laughs> you can go and see it. Where? It's in Australia. They oh, that's as good as being extinct. So there's a, so it's... <laughs> <laughs> I really read up a lot about platypuses lately. First of all, they're amazing. They've got poisoned quills and they glow in the dark, but that's beside the point. They don't export platypi, platypodes, platypodes mm. to other countries. So if you want to see a platypus, you have to go to Australia. Have you been to Australia? Yes. Well, yeah. then you should have seen one. <laughs> anyway, so there, there, there's they one, told me it was extinct. <laughs> there's one exception, and I think it's because Winston Churchill wrote to the president, prime minister of Australia and asked for a platypus to come to London Zoo. And they brought it over by boat very slowly and fed it and tried to keep it alive. And it died shortly after it arrived. It didn't do very well. Like they're quite hard animals to keep in, in, cap in captivity. But I think he was so disappointed, both of them were so disappointed by the lack of success with this project of moving the very much not extinct platypus from Australia to, to London Zoo, that eventually someone sent a taxidermid platypus to Winston Churchill that then lived on Winston Churchill's desk oh. for the vast majority of his later years. I'll ask the question again. <laughs> if you could bring any species back from extinction, what would it be? And, especially for you, would you have a taxidermied version of it on your desk? I wouldn't want a taxidermied version of anything on my desk. It's just <laughs> grotesque. But, well, I would bring back the unicorn. Oh, come on. That's just <laughs> the national animal of Scotland, that is. Well, it went extinct. So. <laughs> <sighs> if I'm you love natural history in the wild world, which if you listen to this podcast, I'm sure you do, don't bother ever reading a novel by Tan Tuan Ling. He is a fraud, a charlatan, and a liar. I'm just as real as a unicorn. <laughs> <laughs> just, just watch the film adaptations of his books. They're, they're, they're shorter. Just, just pay attention to David's acting. That's yeah. all you need to do. Forget yeah. the rest of the film. And then you can go back to the books, <laughs> save for the knowledge that you should have stayed with the literature form anyway. Tan Tuan Eng. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much chat. for putting up with me for a second time. <laughs> much appreciated. And that is that. Four years late, but still perfectly timed to tell you all to head out and to buy the new book, The House of Doors. You could also listen to the audiobook version, where you might even recognise an all-too-familiar voice. A massive thank you to Twaneng for tolerating me again and for introducing me to the many joys of Malaysia and indeed Penang. Penang is incredible. Go, eat, smile, just be careful with the durian. Now, I am back again in Dune, this time with a guest who actually likes animals and nature. So I look forward to seeing you all there. Goodbye for now. Bye-bye. Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh this podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.